Welcome, good evening. Back again for more questions, more answers. We have a few people waiting, so hello for those of you who were here in advance. Now we start to see people stream slowly, stream in. Just maybe give it a few minutes. I can talk for a little bit before we get into it because then people come late and they can just wait so I can talk about tonight's session then. Meanwhile, remember that we try to make this a practice session, so try and stay mindful. We're not here to feed our intellectual curiosity. We're here to straighten our views and clear up misunderstandings, to reaffirm understandings. We're mostly here to support our practice. All right, so... The way this session works is we have some time here at the beginning to say hello, to chat, samodhaniya katha, polite conversation. And there'll come a, a point where I draw the cut off and Tell Chris to to uh, limit the chat to questions, and then it's a question and answer session where you ask questions and Chris posts them and speaks them out loud, and I try to answer them as best I can. At that point, we don't allow chat in the in the chat box, but for now, say hello. Talk, chat, say nice things, say good things, say happy things, mindful things. But most importantly, try to stay mindful. Take this as an opportunity to bring yourself closer to the Dhamma. The Dhamma is not something intellectual or philosophical, it's something practical and real. It's not it's not about me, it's not something you get from me, it's something you get from you, from within. Why I've turned off the video, a big part of it, the main, the real main part of it is a feeling that there's too much focus on me, 
This isn't about me, this is about you. You've come here not to see me, but to see you. To see who you are. If you're coming here to learn about who I am, I would say that's misdirected, misguided. Come here to figure out who you are. Anyway, you're everyone welcome. And I think we're ready to begin. So if we can, please end the chat. And if you don't have any questions, just close your eyes and join me in being as mindful as we can and as present moment after moment to bring our mind back to the present moment. And welcome Chris Thank, thank you for your kind volunteering to ask the questions on people's behalf. Chris will be guarding the chat as well. And I'll be answering questions. So ready to go, Chris, whenever you are. Sure, let's get started. At the last Q&A, at the end, you mentioned that we don't need to want to meditate, but just inclining the mind. What do you mean? What can be an example of this difference in everyday mundane life? Right. We don't, we, we, we think, or we think of it as wanting every time we do something. There's a question that often comes up that, well, you want to meditate, well, you want to become enlightened, so so it's kind of hypocritical of you to say that wanting is a problem. That's just conven- it's conventional thought, it's how we think about it. We don't do, not everything we do is because of wanting. And so I called it inclination. It's in some ways just path of least resistance, or it's uh, logic or it's I don't know, logic makes it sound so cold It's I, I like to talk about it as um, doing the right thing at the right time and, and doing the right thing doing a right thing might be a better way of phrasing it because it's not always clear and it's not so much the thing you do as it is the way you do it it's like if someone tells you to do the dishes so you're asking about a, a, an everyday um, example is it the right thing for you to do the dishes well at so many levels you could take that question but from a practice perspective it's not about the doing of the dishes it's about the right way this is the Buddha talked about a path the path isn't really a a thing that you get further on it's a way of life let's put it like that it's the way of life that's important, the way you live your life. So from the Dhamma perspective, doing the dishes is the, the right thing to do or it's a part of the right way of life because it involves wholesomeness, it involves goodness. And, and so like if your parents are asking you to, to do the dishes, there's goodness in doing them because it's grateful you know you're grateful for the good that your parents do and you recognize that um, you know 
doing the good things, things that they want you to do, being respectful. It's not always that way. Parents can be terrible to their children sometimes, and I'm not sure that in that case it's worth or it's the right thing to do to you know, do what they say, for example. But in most cases, in many cases, it is the right thing to do to be because it's grateful. It's also the right thing to do because it's it's a duty. If your duties are clearly delineated, like like I do this and my parents do those, then that's good good thing to do from a Dhamma perspective because it, it leads to harmony. It's not because duties are anything meaningful, but it's but having duties is a very harmonious way of living. And so it's not like you want anything out of out of this. It's not like you want to be grateful. You do it because you're grateful, because it's part of the right way to live. And and that really comes from wisdom. That's why the path of mindfulness isn't about wanting to meditate or wanting to be mindful. It's about wisdom and understanding and knowing. So how this looks when you start to meditate is usually something like you're hurting. People start to meditate quite often because something bad has happened or is happening. It can often be something bad happened to someone else. Will happen is another one. You saw something bad happen to someone else and it scares you, not because uh, you knew the person even, but because you realize that sort of thing could happen to me as well. Someone died. Right? This is what happened to the Buddha. He saw someone sick, someone old, someone dead, and he just said, that's crazy, that's horrifying. That could happen to me. And that scared him. It disturbed him. And because of that, he inclined towards meditation, not because he wanted anything and there was any craving. So, so the idea that wanting is the only reason why we do things is misleading or misguided. It's not true. It's not really accurate. We incline, and we incline for lots of different reasons. Things like fear, things like anger, things like greed, of course. Delusion even. Sometimes we incline because of wrong views. Views are a huge reason for people inclining towards things. It's a huge reason for people inclining towards evil that they wouldn't otherwise do. It's a big reason why religion has got such a bad reputation in many circles because religion leads people to do bad things when the when the religion is is wrong based on wrong view. So, but it's a reason why people do very good things as well. People keep the precepts because of views, not because of understanding all the time because they have the view it can be out of faith people do things out of faith confidence sometimes overconfidence not always wanting not just, I mean wanting of course is a huge one, it's the big problem right but in meditation it comes from in the beginning it often comes from pain and then someone tells you here's a way to relieve your pain and so you can say, yes, there's a wanting involved there, of course, but there's also an aversion to the pain. It's not just wanting. And so you do it um, as a response, as a means of alleviating, as a, out of aversion, really. But if you look at how the meditation is, is um, how the meditation is, 
composed. What are we talking about here? We're not talking about applying some medication to your skin or taking a pill. We're talking about trying to see the things that cause you suffering more clearly so that there's no reaction or inclination towards them. We're talking about reciting a mantra to yourself. We're talking about trying to re remind yourself and recognize things clearly. And you don't need wanting to do that. There may be wanting, certainly, as a reason for doing it, but there can be aversion as a reason for do it, doing it. But that none of, neither of those, of course, are going to last or, or have any direct benefit. The real reason is once you start to see or you appreciate, like if someone explains to you why you should practice, as I often am explaining to people, that explanation helps clear some things up and helps them say to themselves, oh yeah, that makes sense. And so you could say, oh, then they want to meditate because they heard me say it, but it's not really accurate. They incline towards it. And they naturally just do it. It's a result of being convinced. Being... Uh, being, ex being told, being instructed on how to do it. Often when people are instructed to do things, or, or how to do things, why to do things, they'll they'll do it as a test. And you could say you could say they want to test, but it's not really wanting. It's like it's like how if I tell you, um, imagine a cat. You don't imagine a cat because you want. You just imagine it as a response. That's how teaching works, basically. It's not like I teach you something and then you want to understand it or you want to do it. You often just do it as a response for me teaching you how. Like if I say, oh, just say to yourself, pain, pain. You don't then want to do it. You just do it. But why you eventually get into doing it is because of wisdom. And this is the real reason why we meditate. It's not because after a while we want to do it. It's because after a while we see that it's the right thing to do and so like doing the dishes and so on it becomes the right thing to do it becomes a better way of interacting than our ordinary response I think part of the problem is we think of meditation as this thing that we do something that you add on to your life and meditation is, as I said last time, about subtracting normally we have thoughts I was thinking of today about the word mantra and I think mantra really just, it has something to do with thought. I didn't look it up, but I remember looking it up before. I was remembering the relationship between the word mantra and thought. And it's an important relationship because it really is that. It is a thought. We don't, we don't recognize it as such, but it's a replacement for all of our other thoughts. When you have pain, for example. We have lots of thoughts about the pain. What's wrong with it? What's wrong with my body? What could be causing it? What can I do about it, of course? What might it do to me? What might it result in? And so on. But all of that's replaced by just saying to yourself, pain, which is a replacement thought. It's a clear thought. It's a pure and objective thought. It's a better thought. So it eventually becomes... You, what you're inclined towards and you become very much inclined towards it because of having seen repeatedly how beneficial it is
But ultimately, this question and the answer is, it might be interesting to hear the answer, interesting to ask the question, but let's be careful that we don't get too theoretical. Who cares if it's if it's wanting or not wanting, right? What's the real importance of that? There really isn't a real importance. What's important is that we do the right thing. I think. I mean, I think that part of the answer is important. Understanding what we're trying to do, what we're getting at. So, I mean, there's good in it. But um, yeah, don't worry about too much about specifics. I would say like this. Since starting meditation, I have been more apathetic towards my job. I still perform the functions somewhat adequately, but not above and beyond, as before. How can I get over the apathy? Quit your job. Become a monk. Live in the forest. There isn't a very good answer, I don't think. I mean, partially... That's, but there's two parts to this. One part is, unfortunately, you're not going to be able to... What? Chase after... You're not going to be able to chase after things that aren't going to make you happy. That's what your mind is telling you on the one side. On the other side, meditation can make you negligent. It's not the meditation per se, it's the inability to to juggle, I suppose. Even monks have livelihood issues. We have to find a way to survive. So we do that. In, in, a, in a most simple form by going on alms and receiving charity from people who want to give us food. That's how we survive. And we go looking for rags to make robes. That's the, the most pure and simple way. But we still have to, um, we have to think about these things, right? And Meditation. So what I mean by meditation can make you negligent is that in the beginning you start to forget about these things and you you make the, the leap from understanding how meditation is the most important thing to um, perceiving it as the only important thing. And that's probably not quite correct. It's not necessarily incorrect. You could just go off in the forest and meditate until you die, but no, I don't think that's correct. Uh, I think be because when when you haven't completed the task, when you still have greed, anger, and delusion, you have to be tactical and, and pragmatic about it. In term, just in terms of continuing to support your livelihood and continuing to survive. And so I, what, what I mean is sometimes you have to step back a little bit and not let the meditation consume your life. It, it, the, the, it has a lot to do with our appreciation of, of duties. You have to acknowledge that duties are, are an important part of everyone's life and I would say a lot of the questions I get about people's daily life can can be summed up in terms of duties and I've talked about the the idea of concentric circles concentric circles is just a way of looking at it that works for me because as a monk I have many concentric circles but I think people probably and maybe even have more concentric circles and what it means is 
concentric circles of duty. Like you have very important duties, and of course the most important one is meditation and ethics. Then a bigger one, a bigger circle outside of that that's less important is uh, your your family, your parents, your, your your immediate acquaintances, and then outside of that is. Uh, maybe your your fellow employees or boss or employee or your the people who work under you, and then society as a whole, and then humanity as a whole, and then all beings and that sort of thing. And you have duties, in a sense, to all of these uh, concentric circles. And that's not incompatible with the practice. It can get in the way. It can cause your practice to slow down, but Ultimately, it's a necessary evil because the alternative is, of course, disharmony, it's a conflict, it's resentment, and so on. And so you have to acknowledge your duties and, and the requirements of your life, things like living your, your life, getting a job, having a job, fulfilling your duties in, in your job, and so on. And don't mix those up with the more important things. It can be quite um, confusing when you, you it's conflicting, I guess. When on the one hand you you do the you do the work and and you approach it like you would meditation, for example, you take it to heart, and on the other hand you realize it's not worth taking to heart, and so. You have to see. You have to see worldly things as different. You can't approach them like you would meditation and say, "Put your heart into it," and you shouldn't, because there's nothing worth putting your heart into about uh, about worldly things like livelihood. You have to have another category from them. Less important. This is less important. It doesn't mean it's not important. I mean, ultimately, just the simple answer to your question is there's a middle ground. And no, you, you probably won't be able to get over the apathy completely, but it doesn't mean that you can't function adequately. I mean, I guess ultimately there's, there, there's nothing wrong or anything you should or can do about your situation. Be content with performing adequately and... Don't be concerned about what comes from performing above and beyond. It can be a hard lesson to learn because quite often, it depends on the individual, some people put everything they have into whatever they do. And so you have to be able to, to differentiate between that which is the Buddha called Sara. He said, Sare Sara Matina. I'm not going to get it right. He said, Asare saramatino, sare jasaradasino. Well, someone who sees what is essential as essential and what is unessential as unessential. You have to be able to know the difference. Of course, I think he was talking about things we should do and shouldn't, things we can discard, but no, there are some unessential things that we can't discard. And things like livelihood are in that category, but because they're unessential, why would you worry about going above and beyond with them? I guess that's the point, ultimately. To improve the practice, 
Should I stop having dinner? I realize that sometimes meditating with a full stomach is not ideal. I recommend it. If you can if you can cope with only eating in the morning, I recommend it. You don't have to become a monk to do it. I mean what I recommend for people generally, no no what is recommended generally is uh, to have special days. So in the Buddha's time it was a lunar day. It was about once every eight days, seven or eight days. So with the <clears throat> with the modern calendar, Sunday, Saturday, Friday, one, pick one day and do that one day is I think a good practice. So practice in line with the ancient practice. But also doing it every day is, is in line with the ancient practice. Of course, the once a week would be keeping all eight precepts. So that's, I think, a good practice to have. If you're not going to keep the eight precepts all the time. I've been adjusting to incorporate choosing so that I can more easily get back to the sensations of the stomach while trying not to ignore anything. So, in meditation or even daily mindfulness, can you explain choosing versus ignoring? Does it become sort of like samatha meditation at times? I'm not really familiar. I don't know that I ever used, maybe I did, I don't remember using the word choosing. So I'm not sure if you're referring to something I said. But what I would say is um, focus on what is most prominent, predominant, which is most what is most obvious. And once you've noted that, just go back to the rising and falling. I mean, if you get if on the way to going back to the rising and falling, something else distracts you, that's fine. Note that, but try after you've noted something to go back to the rising and falling. Ignoring is never really a good idea. In walking, it can be. In walking, the um, I mean, this is just from my teacher, but it, it's reasonable and it seems the right way. Um, he said, he said at one one point that there are two ways. He recommended. He said, I mean, he he, he suggested that there are two two ways. He said one way is you can stop and note everything that comes, or you can note something that comes, and the other is. You can wait, if it's a thought, you can wait until the end of the walking. Stop when you come to the end of the walking, and then you can note thinking then. Uh, you know, stop for a, a moment to acknowledge that you're thinking about something. I don't know, maybe I'm not even remembering correctly what he said. It was a long time ago. Mostly I just tell people, you can ignore, you can note anything, of course, but you can also choose to ignore things that are are inconsequential in walking and sitting there's no need to ignore anything but if you're going to note in walking you should stop that's the point you have to stop walking i suffer from bad memories pure ocd depression etc can meditation be helpful Yes, absolutely. I recommend if you'd like to read my booklet and if you're really interested to do an at-home meditation course. After you've read the booklet, you should get a sense of whether it's interesting to you. But then we have this at-home course. I assume you haven't done that, uh, but I recommend to do that. It just means practicing an hour a day and we meet once a week. 
And once you've done that, well, you'll have a sense of, you'll be able to answer that question. I, I, I would pretty much guarantee you'll be able to answer that question for yourself. Maybe not in the affirmative, but I would think in the affirmative. When I meditate on my chronic physical pain, I get a strange sensation, not necessarily increased pain, but an intense feeling, and it becomes so intense I get scared and back off. How do I push through? Don't push through, note the fear. Whenever you have to ask, how do I push through, or note that you're pushing through, or anything like that, it's, not, it's a sign that something's wrong. And it's usually, I would say mostly, a sign that you're ignoring something. Trying to trying to deal with some one thing when in fact you should be dealing with something else. And what you should be dealing with here is your fear. Your fear is what causes you to whatever backing off means. I mean, I, I just, I, it's not, I'm not quite sure what, what you, what you're referring to, but it could be any number of things. But whatever it means to back off is caused by getting scared. So try and note the fear. To say afraid, afraid. I mean, maybe maybe there's some doubt. You know, is something wrong? Am I doing something wrong? Is meditation wrong? Doubt is here lack of conviction that it's okay to, to keep noting, right? Another thing I can note is strange. The word strange, and this is something for everyone. Listen up. Because the word strange is something you have to remember. Strange is the characteristic of impermanence. It's an important thing that we're trying to see. Seeing things as strange, or having experiences of something being strange, is an important part of the practice because of how it opens your mind up to the unpredictable nature of reality. Unpredictability is an, is an intrinsic quality of samsara. And it's a huge part of what prevents us from clinging, from from clinging to things, uh, well, from suffering. Let's put it more more succinctly. It's it's a huge part of what what causes us suffering because we cling to things that are impermanent. When you see impermanence, it's a huge part of what frees us. I mean, it's an intrinsic. It's it's that which frees us from suffering. Because we stop expecting what what can't be fulfilled. We stop expecting stability, satisfaction, control, self. So strange strange can often be a cause for the meditator to become afraid, for example. But that's not a proper outcome. That's a, a that's a part of our old response is strange. Why? Because strange is hard to deal with. It's not something we have an answer to. And and it's practically speaking useful to get afraid, I mean in a worldly sense, because it's an it's it's based on acknowledgement that this could hurt us. This could cause if I don't that this is it could be a major cause for suffering because I might react wrongly because I don't know how to react to this. I might do the wrong thing, and it could certainly it would have unpredictable consequences. Now, overcoming that fear, 
overcoming that fear is is a better thing because it it keeps you level-headed it keeps you present and it allows you to learn about that thing it allows you to be uh, judicious in your response to that thing it's not that the fear is at all useful the fear is more of a symptom than a a cause for anything good so so rather than backing off and not dealing with the situation Mindfulness allows you to be with a situation in a way that prevents acting irrationally, acting in a way that could cause suffering. You don't need fear to to prevent you from suffering for something. You just need to be mindful and present. So, so be when 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 strange things happen, you should, you can be reassured that you're learning, you're 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 opening up to greater potential and and um, cultivating uh, a greater strength of mind, strength of mind that comes from understanding that unpredictable things can happen, so that you're not taken off guard when they do, right? you're not you don't get afraid when they do, you aren't stressed, worried. I only meditate at a set time every night. Shall I alternate times or keep a routine? I recommend, if you can, twice a day, in the morning and in the night. But that's fine. Keeping a routine is fine. A routine can be good if it keeps you meditating. Altering it can be uh, less predictable, so harder to keep it up every day. I mean, some flexibility is good because if you don't, then what if you're busy or something happens during that set time and then you don't meditate, right? So whatever it is that allows you to meditate every day, I would say having a schedule but being flexible with it is probably the best way. How do I know I am meditating properly? What signs will arise that confirm during meditation that I'm doing it right? So there are signs, but first let's talk about the actual state of meditating properly because I think your first sign is not the results. Your first sign is the quality of it. There's a clarity, there's a purity to just being aware of things. In the beginning, that's probably not so clear, but it becomes clear as you go. As you are mindful. But the signs are pretty obvious. You're going to find that there's a difference between being mindful, and in the beginning they can be quite extreme. If you've never really been mindful before, if you've been unmindful or stressed, you're going to find some pretty profound changes. You'll find that the pains that you had are no longer bothering you. You'll find that the, the things that stressed you out are no longer stressing you out. Uh, 
You'll just see when you say stressed, stressed, that, oh, where did it go? Angry, angry. And that will, that will um, reverberate into your life, where you'll start to see that, in hey, oh, that meditation helped, you know, I'm, I'm not as stressed, I'm not as upset as before. The pain doesn't bother me as much. So there are signs for sure. What you don't want to do, I think, is worry about when a lot of bad things happen because bad thing, like, I mean, uh, bad mind states creep back in or come back in and then you feel discouraged and think, oh, I thought that was permanent. Meditation is drops in a bucket. It's It's very small what you're doing. Don't expect eradication of defilements because you did some meditation. When you build up and build up the habits of, of mindfulness and, and clarity, eventually, eventually they will, if the if the circumstances are right, when, when everything comes together, if everything aligns properly, there might come a time, well, there will eventually come a time where they come together in strength. Right? All the other bad stuff inside has been weakened, it's been interrupted, and all the good, all the moments, all the minutes, all the hours that you spent doing meditation are all going to come together, supported by all the good deeds you've done to help others, uh, all the all the good good deeds you've done to 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 refrain from harming others it's all going to come together and there'll be a moment where it's so powerful that it will have the power to eradicate it will have the power to let go to free you from samsara even just momentarily experience what we call nibbana even just for a moment and that will change you that has the power to change you but in the meantime, try and understand and, and don't forget, don't be discouraged. It's easy to be discouraged and to forget what's very clear, really. First of all, the purity of the moment of being mindful. And second of all, those immediate results. Right? When, you, when you're mindful, oh, hey, that was a better way of interacting. That did have good results. Don't forget all that because there's still lots of bad stuff. Don't let the bad stuff make you forget and make you think, oh, this meditation's useless, it didn't have any effect on all this bad stuff. We're complicated, and all of our bad habits aren't just going to go away. They'll be back. Sometimes we'll be caught off guard because we're so happy and at peace with the good stuff. They can actually be worse because we're caught off guard, whereas normally we're prepared for our bad habits. But eventually, eventually you'll your good habits will overcome them. It just takes time and patience. When meditating, there can be a sense of a self behind noting the belly rising and falling. Should I note this sense of self whenever I see it? It is often there in the background. Yeah, just say something like knowing, knowing. 
There's nothing really there in the background. That's misleading. It feels like some things are in the background because it's very quick, but eventually you'll start to see that things come and go individually. So don't ever think of something as being in the background. When you notice it, that's your object. Try and note that. When I'm meditating, I feel the need to move my legs or my arms. Should I do it or should I stay quiet? Yeah, I mean, note that need. If you do it, note the moving. I mean, one example of this is when there's great pain, sometimes people feel like they need to move to, to relieve it. That's fine. Just not wanting to move. I mean, note the pain first, of course. Not wanting to move. And then when you move, moving, moving. Or, you know, lifting, placing, whatever it is. How much meditation should I do daily? Is one hour enough? Enough for what? There's no limit. There's no minimum. I mean, the minimum is, of course, more than none. Minimum is some. It's not so much about hours. Let's be a little more clear. An hour, there's no such thing as an hour of meditation. There's a moment of meditation. So an hour's worth of moments where you are mindful, that would be wonderful. But that's not going to happen if the other 23 hours of the day you're not mindful. So it doesn't exist in in in, sol in isolation. That's why I recommend doing twice a day, and it's not so much about how much you do, as it is about getting back into it after 12 hours. Because if if you're only doing it once every 24 hours, that's 23 hours where it's easy to forget about being mindful. If you're doing it more than once through the day, it, it's it's more something at the front of your mind. But important as well is throughout the day, try and be mindful. When you're walking anywhere, try and say walking, walking. When you're standing, say standing. When you're sitting, say sitting, whenever you can. If you do it once in a while, it's great. It's a great support. It's those moments. It's not hours or minutes. Again, just uh, I see a lot of detracted mess retracted messages. This is only questions. If you don't ask a question, I'm asking Chris to remove it. So here's someone, I'm removing it. Um, if it's not a question, we'll just remove it. It's not, it's not out of um, spite or something. We're not upset, but... This is our rule. It just makes things clearer. And, and a reminder that we're not here to talk. We're here to, well, you're here to listen and uh, and to, to be mindful. Unfortunately, I'm the only one who gets to answer questions. We've done it before where we had a panel, but it kind of has to be vetted. You know, we can't just, this is the internet. We can't just allow anyone to answer questions. It gets complicated as well. And we don't want people reading the chat for their answers either. The great thing is you don't have to even keep your eyes open. You've asked your question. 
Just close your eyes and if you get an answer, you'll be able to hear it. We're also trying to prioritize. I didn't mention this time, but just to reiterate. If your question hasn't been answered, it may very well be because it's not considered high priority. Our priority here is to answer questions that need an answer. If we can say about that question that an answer to that question would really help that person in their practice, then that's high priority. If it's about meditation, but it doesn't seem high priority, well, it's second, second tier. And if it's just theoretical or if it's out of curiosity, then it's lower and lower and lower tier. And if it's, there are certain things that I probably just don't answer, like about other religions or other traditions or personal questions, that sort of thing, for various reasons. How can chanting, dharma talk, and meditation train the mind? Everything we do with the mind trains the mind. Most things we do with the body also train the mind, you know, in, you know, in terms of being able to do that with the body. So, I don't know, I'm not, this isn't really, a, there's not nothing really deep to be answered here. Chanting trains you in chanting, Dhamma talks. Well, Dhamma talks train you based on the information they give you and, and the confidence they give you and that sort of thing. Meditation trains the mind because it's mental activity. Also, any kind of mental activity trains the mind. What are the meditation techniques that were taught by Buddha? How to meditate on senses and body? So I'm going to limit my answer to, say, read the booklet. And that should give you an idea of the answer to the second question. First question is a little too theoretical. I'm not sure that an answer to that is so interesting. I mean, let's put it this way. What I teach, I, I understand it to be taught by the Buddha, and that's enough. If you're interested in reading the booklet, we have a link to it in the description, and it's on our website, that sort of thing. I recommend going there. I've been meditating less and less. What should I do about it? Try and, and work on what is causing you to meditate less and less. There's usually something. I mean, it, it can just be circumstances beyond your control, but even in circumstances beyond your control, you should be able to be mindful throughout the day as best you can. Now, it's usually something else. Maybe there's an aversion towards meditation. 
Maybe there's uh, an attachment to pleasures of other kind and that sort of thing. And all of those you can be mindful of. Sometimes we are, 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 are neglecting some aspect of the four foundations of mindfulness. Maybe it's our emotion. Usually it's emotions, some attachment or aversion, fear, stress, worry, etc. What is your view about the use of stimulant medication prescribed for ADHD? Would it enhance meditation or hinder it? So I'll answer this in two ways. First of all, um, anything that you use as a... Well, let me answer the other way first. The first way I'll answer this, the other way to answer this, is from my experience. So regardless of what I think about medication, I have experience with people who have been on medication, and it's never been positive. It has always been um, as though they were getting nothing out of the practice. It was always as though the medication was blocking them from uh, receiving the results. So regardless of what I th why I think that is, it's empirical evidence. From my, from my, I mean, it's, it's not like it's dangerous. It's just like it's kind of unhelpful. And... Uh, because of the nature of our intensive courses, it's really not um, practical to take someone through them who's on medication. And for that reason, we uh, we don't accept people who are on medication. Uh, but why I think that is, and and what I understand, you know, how it approach, how it how it hits me in terms of the dhamma, is that above and beyond what the medication is doing to your brain, because I don't think what it's doing to your brain is the most important thing. It's your reason for taking the medication. We take the medication because we have a problem, something that we can't deal with. And mindfulness is about facing those things that we see as problems and trying to deal with them. Learning to deal with them, becoming stronger. So it's actually antithetical. The medication is antithetical, and and that's hard for people, a lot of people, to understand. But it's mainly because of a difference of understanding of what we mean when we say med meditation. Most people's understanding of meditation is a means of calming the mind, of getting the mind into a different state, one that's more pleasant, more peaceful. And it, and when I talk, it sounds like I'm saying the same thing, right? As I, when, I, when I asked about the benefits of meditation, how do you see results? Oh, it'll make you more peaceful. But that's glossing over the fact that the real way it makes you more peaceful and the more profound way that it does is not by avoiding or, or overriding your problems or finding a way to, to get away from them. It's about confronting them. Visaya bhimukha bhava. That's the... the um, the bhava of mindfulness. Bhava means, in this case, what does it mean? Visayabhi sambhava, I think, no? Visayabhi mukha. Visayabhi mukha bhava. Anyway, it's the, the function of mindfulness is to confront. Abhi mukha, to 
to to to to face the problems. And we look at the first noble truth: why people are terrified of Buddhism or or horrified by it. Why? Because the Buddha talked all about suffering. The first noble truth: understand suffering fully, not run away from it, not escape it, but confront it. Observe it, watch it. Mainly because we we the things we think are causing us suffering aren't causing us suffering, and the things we don't realize are causing us suffering are causing us suffering. Meaning, we cling to things, not realizing that that's going to cause us suffering, and we uh, are averse averse to things, not realizing that those things aren't the problem. That's maybe not so clear, but when you have an object, the object is not causing you suffering. Clinging to that object is causing you suffering. That's the point. And you focus on the object, you'll see that the object is not worth clinging to. You'll see that the object has, has nothing about it that um, is attractive, that, that evokes desire. Our desire is based on delusion and ignorance. Anyway, that's a bit sort of beside the point. So, in brief, I would say it hinders meditation. It hinders this type of meditation. Doesn't doesn't hinder calm meditation, I suppose. I'm not actually sure, but like samatha meditation, would it prevent you from entering the jhanas? I don't know. I have to think about that. What should I note when creating something, such as crocheting or knitting? Should I note pushing, pulling, looping to be specific crocheting to name the activity or creating to be more general? Yeah, I don't think either crocheting or creating are going to be all that helpful. Like pushing, pulling, looping would be would be great. You know, you, I encourage people to create meditation routines. Like a common one is eating, chewing, chewing, swallowing. It's a good routine. When you're showering, you'll be scrubbing, scrubbing, and so on. But if you do something like crocheting, probably a very it's a great way to... I think I know who this is because someone mentioned it. If it's not, then, then I'll say this. Someone mentioned this to me recently and, um, and suggested that it was a very mindful activity. And I think I agree for sure. You have to be careful if it's something that create gives you pleasure. You have to be, you know, the liking as well. But you know, crocheting is, I think, a great thing. I know monks who crochet. That might, it might make me laugh, but uh, monks have um, our bowls. A tradition is to often uh, put your bowl in a in a a case. It's kind of it's not a bag exactly. It's a a shell. It's a crocheted shell that fits around the bowl to just to prevent it from getting dented and, and scratched. And monks actually will knit those, crochet them, I guess. I don't know. Knit, crochet, I don't know. It can be a very mindful activity for sure, if you do it right. Well, I'm sorry, what I was going to say is it's very productive, right? You're creating something and you can give give that away. People who do crocheting are often doing it for someone else, which is a very wholesome thing. It's a very selfless and pleasant thing because it's good, it's wholesome. 
Just don't get attached to it as well. I mean, just note the wanting, the liking and so on. If one achieves Nibbana, Arhatship, via practicing meditation, then is this a permanent achievement, or must one continue meditation to maintain Arhatship? It's a permanent achievement. I can't focus on meditation anymore. I have been doing Vipassana and body scan for two months now but now I can't seem to do them anymore. Why is that? Yeah, I, the only comment I can give is that that's a different tradition, and if you're interested in doing what we do, um, you should read our booklet on how to meditate. You may not have realized it, but this is a different tradition from that tradition. So yeah, I'd encourage you to consider uh, reading the booklet to see if maybe it works better, but I can't comment on how that tradition works. Sakyaditi means come to realize that there is no one called me inside. Rather, the six senses doing its work. By meditating, can one experience this? Yes. Yes, absolutely, because that's the truth, right? And so you're going to see the truth of the six senses doing their work. Uh, you, did, Chris, did you get this one about seasonal depression? I didn't answer that yet, did I? Uh, I have it down. I put it in with a list of questions that were similar enough to questions that had been answered, but I can bring oh, I that see. one up. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. It just looks like this person could use an answer, maybe. And I'll ask that question now. I suffer from seasonal depression. Is there different mindfulness pract meditation practices or techniques you recommend while going through the dark night? So again, the dark night is not a word that we use in this tradition. It's someone that something that one teacher has coined that I don't really agree with personally. But and so, so I think it's important to note that. And and okay, let me reiterate why that is, as I've said elsewhere, is because it's reifying something. It's creating you're creating this concept of something that you call the dark night. Something that really has no basis in the Buddhist teaching. Uh, the 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 path should not be a dark night. It should be uh, liberating. It should be freeing. It should be a positive experience. So it can conflate things, and it certainly isn't something that you can approach mindfully. Once you conceptualize something like depression. Depression, I had this thought about depression, and I'm not sure that all depression is like this, but uh, it occurred to me that, that at least some depression, if not all, is um, being unhappy about being unhappy. So being unhappy is one thing, but depression, as I've experienced it or experienced it in, in my childhood, was uh, was when it makes you unhappy that you're unhappy, Right? Because that's where it snowballs. And I bring that up because even depression is reifying, is is reifying in a general sense. I mean, it, it's creating something. It's giving something existence. 
which is what reifying means. You, you augment its existence, when in fact the reality is something a little bit more subtle, more granular. And so the problem with things like the dark night or even depression are that they're not quite exact enough. When you're unhappy, you should say unhappy. When that makes you unhappy, when the unhappiness makes you unhappy, you should also note unhappy or disliking. It's a very sort of clear expression of what's going on. There's only one mindfulness meditation practice, at least in, in this tradition. There are other meditation practices that aren't mindfulness, that can be supportive. But for things like depression, I can't think of anything better than just being mindful. I mean, one of them might be mindfulness of the Buddha because it gives you encouragement, positive encouragement when you think of how great the Buddha was. But it's not very powerful. I mean, it, it's not as powerful as being mindful. It's not as deep. How to meditate on Vedana? I feel like I can note Kaya, Chitta, and Dhamma, but somehow Vedana seems like an extrapolation of those. It never seems to come up as an object of direct experience. Oh, well, I don't think you've read the booklet then. Should I just say, read the booklet? I mean, I guess I can be clear. The word Vedana might mean different things to different people, but it's pretty clear in the Buddha's teaching. There's Dukkha, there's Sukha, and there's Upeka. It's very clear. When you feel pain, you'd say pain, pain. When you feel happy, you would say happy, happy. When you feel calm, you say calm, calm. That's how we meditate on it. You probably haven't read the booklet. I recommend you do that because you might realize that I'm coming from a different place than you are and our practices might be very different. But if you read it and it interests you, then uh, certainly by all means you can use it as a means of meditating on Vedana. Okay, it's nine o'clock. Let's make let's wrap it up with only important questions. Here we are. If I wouldn't take medication, I would have a psychotic episode again, and the episodes are proven to shrink the brain and make brain damage. I could get well, homeless and suicidal. Should I go off them? <laughs> I guess not. So so let's um no, no let me let me let me answer more about that one. Go back to it. I'm not suggesting anyone go off medication. I'm suggesting that um, med medication for things like depression, anxiety, is avoiding the problem. And I think in most cases, mindfulness could be a replacement. Now, many people would be horrified for me saying that, but there's no question in my mind that it would be a replacement, an actual replacement for the medication with, with no harmful consequences. Now, for some people, they have extreme um, mental imbalance, let's say. I mean, we all have mental imbalance. It's nothing to be ashamed of. But for some people, it's quite extreme. It can even be organic, where the brain is doing funny things that is uh, triggering mental imbalance. And so to go off them would make them suicidal and uh, cause them to act in ways that are... Uh, harmful and you know that, that make them lose their jobs for example 
So I don't think that it's categorically different, but I think in most cases, let's say in all cases, going off medication is probably not the right answer unless you have good support. And certainly for people who are schizophrenic and bipolar, I don't know about bipolar, I'm not really clear on, on what that means, but well, besides meaning that they go, people go back and forth, but you know, what, what, are the, how, what are the extremes of bipolar? I don't know. Let's say schizophrenia, because I do have some clarity of what that means. Not that I have direct experience, but just clarity of on an intellectual level. I don't know where I was going with that. Um... For schizophrenia in particular, well, no, I mean, just in general, if you have the support, yeah, uh, right, so with schizophrenia, it is probably very difficult, very challenging. I mean, I met a monk once who was schizophrenic, and he believed that he had a microchip in his brain, and he knew that it was irrational, but he still believed it. He knew that. I mean, he'd gone to have his brain scanned. He believed there was a microchip planted in his skull by some nefarious organization. This was a Thai monk. And he said he'd been and had his brain scanned several times and paid money for it. Uh, but but he still believed it. And so I tried to you know, guide him through the idea that the, the thoughts that he had been microchipped is quite different from believing it. And and in general with schizophrenia, that's the point. That's the solution. But anyway, without going into the solutions, with the right support, I believe, and I don't have any experience to back this up, but I believe I could help someone to deal with their schizophrenia. You, you can't stop the hallucinations in most cases, as I understand. It's not that you're going to stop hearing voices, that you're going to stop getting thoughts of whatever, suicide quite often. But the point is you don't need to. And this was an article I read by someone who's not Buddhist and not a meditator, but he was schizophrenic. And he was told he was told that he should try to get a job at a gas station or something like that. I've told this story several times, I can't find it. Someone asked if I could find it. I have no idea. It was in a magazine many years ago. Uh, but he became a PhD, I think it was a PhD. And people were, there, there was, there, his doctors said, you know, that he should just prepare to get some simple job because that's all he's ever going to be able to do. But he realized something along the way in his own um, journey to, to, um, to healing was that they were just hallucinations. And all he had to do was keep himself on track to understanding that this is just hallucination. Now, I don't know if those are the words he actually actually used, but I wouldn't say it quite like that. It's not that they're hallucinations, it's that they are just thoughts. It's about realizing that thoughts have no meaning beyond just what they are. And that goes with everything. Pain doesn't have any meaning. It's not a sign. It's not your body telling you something when you feel pain. It's just pain. It really is. The body is not this thing that says, uh oh, I better tell them the brain about this. There's nothing like that. The body just 
uh, triggers pain. Pain is just pain. Thought is just thought. Thinking about killing yourself is actually not a problem at all. We give it a name, suicidal ideation. It's just thought. Trauma, PTSD. Break it down. It's memories that we react to, and we reinforce those reactions again and again, and that's the problem. So I believe wholeheartedly that schizophrenia is... Um, I'm not sure that the person asking this is schizophrenic, but schizophrenia is something that is, uh, well, curable through meditation in the sense of curing the mental side of it, where you no longer cling to the things that you experience. And I can imagine it's incredibly difficult. I'm not sure that everyone would succeed. But um, one thing my teacher said when asked this sort of thing, he said, Here's a test, simple test. Show someone rice and water and ask them which is which. Ask the, point to the rice and say, what is that? And if they can say that that's rice and then point to the water and they can say that that's water, he said they have mindfulness. That's the litmus test. If someone can do that much, they can practice meditation. So you being on here, able to ask these questions, there's no question that you, you, you have mindfulness. You're, you're very far far above being able to recognize right and water, rice and water. Um, but beyond schizophrenia, there is there are other psychoses where where you react violently, right? Paranoia. I call it. I think there's even paranoid schizophrenia and that sort of thing. I mean, that's the whole point. Uh, someone who had this condition talked to me about this, and he was skeptical because he said, "There's no. It's not a reaction." He said it just is when I experience something I react violently it's it's I, I can't stop it and I, I disagree and I think I disagreed in the sense of well not being so much about you stopping it as about being being in a different way engaging with the experience in a different way and it takes training it's not like you go off the medication, you start meditating, and poof, you're doing it better, you're doing it right. But I would say, as long as you have mindfulness, as long as you can pass the rice water test, you have the potential to wean yourself off the medication, to learn to approach things that trigger your reactions in a way that eventually doesn't trigger those reactions. So it's simple, it's not at all easy. And I think we're done. Any other urgent questions? Oh, they keep adding up, Monte. <laughs> That's great. Will you take the time to answer? I have two more I think should be answered. All right, two more. I'm considered having ADHD. I work as a freelancer and my work is stressful for me. Some days I even play games instead of doing my work because it's stressful and boring. Can I heal ADHD with Buddhism? You have to start with the approach that you're not trying to heal. That's very important. Nothing's ever going to get healed by thinking by, by focusing on the healing. Because what you're implying there is a desire to be healed. 
a sense that there's something wrong with what you're experiencing, with what you're doing. Often there's guilt associated with, for example, playing games instead of doing work. Self-hatred or just hatred in general. You know, a huge, a huge part of the problem is going to be self-hatred. And it may not be hatred so much as just annoyance, anger. But often it can be. We say things like, oh, I'm so this, I'm so that. So useless, I'm so dumb, and so on. So it's about seeing clearly in a way that we're not seeing clearly. And, and, and instead of getting upset, instead of wanting, just seeing. That's the practice. Try and just see things as they are. Thinking is just thinking. Lose the whole idea that you have ADHD. You've reified it, and that's what these labels do. You know, people talk about how labels are useful, and they they give sort of some some sense of closure to people who are like thinking, "What's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? Oh, I have ADHD. Oh, that's a relief. It's it's something that and now I understand it. Now I know what it is. Right? Reifying does that. That's why words are so powerful. That's an example of how. Why why we say to ourselves pain, pain, for example Because words have power When you give a word to something, it gives you confidence When you say, I have depression People who are depressed will say, I am clinically depressed And that's reassuring Much more reassuring would be to say to yourself Disliking, disliking Or with ADHD, it would be restless, restless, anxious, anxious That's incredibly reassuring It's It, it creates cohesion in the mind much more granular and much more in tune with the, the nature of the reality. It's on a deeper level. So can you heal? Well, what I said. Don't worry so much about healing. But the answer is yes. How can we be sure to do enough to not be selfish as far as taking precautions not to catch COVID-19 and potentially infect others who could infect others themselves? This is a complicated worded question. Let me break this down. Uh, how can we be sure to do enough to not be selfish as far as Not to catch my poor brain. I, I mean, I think I get the gist of it. No, I don't even get the gist of it. Not be selfish. Well, let me talk about COVID-19, I guess. Um, I, I think it's good not to be selfish. And I think people who decide not to wear a mask in public are being negligent. Um, I mean, I think there's something to be said about not being paranoid or afraid of sickness, but there's something far more to be said about understanding that you can spread the sickness to others. And not only that, you become a burden on the the, the health health um, what the what's it called on the hospital system, the health industry. Like in Canada, healthcare is free, so I wouldn't have to pay if I got sick. But I would put up—I would be a burden on the on the health 
industry. I would be a burden on the the system. And so for that reason alone, I should avoid getting sick. I would also be a burden on a lot of people if I got sick. So even just from that point of view, I shouldn't I should try not to get sick. But but of course much more. If everyone we get in, in contact with, once we get it, I'm not sure really how it works, but I guess it's something like for two weeks we can infect others before we even know we have it. So just because you aren't coughing doesn't mean you have any right to be cavalier about it. Now, if you have cancer and you want to be cavalier about it, I think it's a very Buddhist thing to do often. But in this case, it's an infectious disease that's easily spreadable, easily spreadable, and causes great damage to people's lungs and hearts and leads to death. Really has a high chance of leading to death in others. It's not just a common flu, and even the flu is something we should take a little bit seriously because of how it affects old people, and we can be a cause for harm towards them. It's another, at the very least, it's one of our duties. So if you don't want to take it to heart and you say, really, we're all just going to die, well, that's true. For simple harmony's sake, and for stopping, for making people happy and and not making people angry at you if you, you know these people who who had parties and infected all sorts of people or went to parties when they were infected and that sort of thing and ended up infecting others it makes people very upset you know you 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 caused you killed my grandparents or you killed my parents it's not something people are very happy about it's caught crazy it creates great suffering and you did that and so shame on you a bad thing to do you disrupted society you hurt people you created violence it's a very bad thing to do for your own mental health and well-being we should never be selfish we should never be thoughtless we should never be inconsiderate considerate you know Thai people I've heard from several Thai people it became a thing it's become a thing in Thailand they say they say it's a, it's just kind of like a saying in Thailand. There's no word for gengjai in English. Or they say foreigners don't have a word for gengjai. Greng greng means well considerate. So my uncle said this to me once, and I had thought about it. And he said, "Yeah, well, Thai people say that there's no word for gengjai in English." I said, "Sure, there is. We just don't use it that much. The word is considerate, consideration, or considerate." We're inconsiderate, and, and we've got a reputation of being inconsiderate, whereas in Thailand being considerate is, is a very important quality. Thinking of others before you do something, not not just thinking about yourself. Being thoughtful, it's a very Buddhist sort of thing to be thoughtful. Not thinking a lot, but having the presence of mind to understand consequences and to clearly see the consequences. It's a very good thing. So I don't know if that answers your question. I would encourage you, if it doesn't, to maybe not use so many negatives in your sentence. Be a little clearer about what exactly you're asking. And that's just my own. Yeah. My own. It's not your fault, really. It's just that I'm not.
mentally equipped to handle that question, not at this time. I only eat in the morning, so at night I lose a little bit of my capacity to answer questions. Is that it? I think we can call it to a close, Bhante. I know there's there's all there's other questions, huh? Oh, we could be going for hours yet. All right. So, question period is over. Go ahead and say what you want in chat. What was all that stuff you deleted? Ah, uh, yes. Uh, there were people speaking to one another. Generally mm. good, compassionate, kind, hopeful, helpful messages, but uh, against the decorum we've set. Right. Well, maybe near the end you can sort of, when you know I'm ending anyway. I didn't officially say we can go back to talking, but maybe near the end when they know there's only two questions left, you can just let people talk. I'll do that from now on. Anyway, it's over. So no more questions. Now let's just chat. Say what you want. Everyone say sad because it was good. And if it wasn't good, well, uh, you know where you know where the door is. You don't have to come back. Thank you all. I appreciate you all very much. Appreciate your practice and your goodness. May everyone, may you all be well. Thank you, Chris, for your help. May the goodness you get from doing this be a support for you as well. I appreciate your wholesome inclination. Thank you for the opportunity to participate, Bonte. And thank you to those who are listening now. Have a good night, everyone.